Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. You might have heard that the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is hosting a Republican debate in their Air Force One Pavilion on Wednesday, September 27th. We're proud to be able to participate in this important component of our democratic process, and we hope you'll tune into Fox News on debate evening. Since we're in debate season, we thought it might be fun to go back 43 years ago when candidate Ronald Reagan was easing into the final stretch of his campaign. Just as a refresher, here's a soundbite from his candidacy speech. The crisis we face is not the result of any failure of the American spirit. It's a failure of our leaders to establish rational goals and give our people something to order their lives by. If I'm elected, I shall regard my election as proof that the people of the United States have decided to set a new agenda and have recognized that the human spirit thrives best when goals are set and progress can be measured in their achievement. By late spring 1980, Ronald Reagan had sealed the deal on the nomination and campaigned hard throughout the summer. From late September to mid-October, Ronald Reagan maintained a steady lead of just a few percentage points in published polls. But private surveys showed that Carter had damaged his own reputation especially among independents, with all his repeated negative campaigning. Recall when he called Reagan a warmonger and said that it would be a catastrophe to put Reagan in the White House. At the same time, Carter had deepened the doubts about Governor Reagan. Turns out, the issue on which Reagan appeared to be most vulnerable was on whether his repeated call for a military buildup would increase the risk of confrontation with the Soviet Union. Still, the wild card was the fate of the hostages held captive in Iran. Both Carter and Reagan had tiptoed around this issue, knowing that any attempt to exploit the plight of the hostages could backfire. So, what about a debate? Well, in 1980, nationally televised debates between presidential nominees were not the political fixtures they've become today. The first televised debate between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy in 1960 had contributed to JFK's narrow victory and sounded a cautionary note for future candidates. No incumbent president had ever debated his opponent on television. Yeah, really. Prior to 1980, no incumbent president had ever debated his opponent on television. LBJ ducked a debate in 1964, and Nixon did the same in 1972. But in the early fall of 1980, Jimmy Carter knew he was trailing in the polls, needed a knockout blow to win. The Carter camp saw Reagan as a showman whose deficiencies might be exposed in a face-to-face -face encounter with a knowledgeable president. Well, Ronald Reagan was accustomed to such condescension. In fact, he knew how to rely on self-deprecating humor to engage people. At an Al Smith dinner, just before the debates, after President Carter had launched into a heavy-handed diatribe, Governor Reagan stuck to the format and joked that there wasn't any truth to the rumor that he looked younger because he kept riding older and older horses. His ability to campaign with a smile engaged the American people. 
Let it show on the record that when the American people cried out for economic help, Jimmy Carter took refuge behind a dictionary. Well, if it's a definition, if it's a definition he wants, I'll give him one. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose yours. And recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. So, finally, Jimmy Carter agreed to debate candidate Reagan on October 28, 1980, just one week before the election. They met at Cleveland Music Hall. There were no opening statements. The moderator was Howard K. Smith, and the journalists posing questions were Marvin Stone, editor of U.S. News and World Report, Harry Ellis, national correspondent of the Christian Science Monitor, William Hilliard, assistant managing editor of the Portland Oregonian, and Barbara Walters, correspondent, ABC News. We'll listen to the first questions lofted to each candidate, and the very first question went to Governor Reagan. Governor, as you're well aware, uh, the question of war and peace has emerged as a central issue in this campaign, and the give and take of recent weeks, President Carter's been criticized for responding late to aggressive Soviet impulses, for insufficient buildup of our armed forces, and a paralysis in dealing with Afghanistan and Iran. You have been criticized for being all too quick to advocate the use of lots of muscle, military action, to deal with foreign crises. Specifically, what are the differences between the two of you on the uses of American military power? I don't know what the differences might be because I don't know what Mr. Carter's policies are. I do know what he has said about mine. And I'm only here to tell you that I believe with all my heart that our first priority must be world peace and that use of force is always and only a last resort when everything else has failed and then only with regard to our national security. Now, I believe also that this meeting this mission, this responsibility for preserving the peace, which I believe is a responsibility peculiar to our country, that we cannot shirk our responsibility as the leader of the free world because we're the only one that can do it. And therefore, the burden of maintaining the peace falls on us. And to maintain that peace requires strength. America has never gotten in a war because we were too strong. We can get into a war by letting events get out of hand as they have in the last three and a half years under the foreign policies of this administration of Mr. Carter's until we're faced each time with a crisis. And good management in preserving the peace requires that we control the events and try to intercept before they become a crisis. But I have seen four wars in my lifetime. I'm a father of sons. I have a grandson. I don't ever want to see another generation of young Americans bleed their lives into sandy beachheads in the Pacific or rice paddies and jungles in, the, in Asia or the muddy, blood of, bloody fields of battlefields of, of Europe. After the debate, 
Mike Deaver commented that he mentioned the word peace so often that it sounded as if he had invented the word. Now, for the president's first question. Yes, uh, President Carter, the question of war and peace, a central issue in this campaign. You've been criticized for, in the give and take, for responding uh, late to aggressive Soviet uh, impulses, for an insufficient buildup of our armed forces, and a paralysis in dealing with Afghanistan and Iran. Governor Reagan, on the other hand, has been criticized for being all too quick to advocate the use of lots of muscle military action to deal with the foreign crises such as I mentioned. Specifically, what are the differences between the two of you on the uses of American military power? Mr. Stone, I've had to make thousands of decisions since I've been president serving in the Oval Office. And with each one of those decisions that affect the future of my country, I have learned in the process. I think I'm a much wiser and more experienced man than I was when I debated four years ago against President Ford. I've also learned that there are no simple answers to complicated questions. H.L. Mencken said that for every problem, there's a simple answer. It would be neat and plausible and wrong. The fact is that this nation in the eight years before I became president, had its own military strength decrease. Seven out of eight years, the budget commitments for defense went down, 37% in all. Since I've been in office, we've had a steady, carefully planned, methodical, but very effective increase in our commitment for defense. But what we've done is to use that enormous power and, and prestige and military strength of the United States to preserve the peace. We've not only kept peace for our own country, but we've been able to extend the benefits of peace to others. In the Middle East, we've worked for a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt successfully and have tied ourselves together with Israel and Egypt in a common defense capability. This is a very good step forward for our nation's security, and we'll continue to do as we've done in the past. I might also add that there are decisions that are made in the Oval Office by every president which are profound in nature. There are always troubled spots in the world. And how those troubled areas are addressed by a president alone in that Oval Office affects our nation directly. The involvement of the United States and also our American interest. That is a basic decision that has to be made so frequently by every president who serves. That's what I've tried to do successfully by keeping our country at peace. More about the 1980 debate, and well, there you go again right after this brief message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself, and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. The Carter campaign had repeatedly accused Ronald Reagan of wanting to eliminate Social Security and Medicare. Here's the famous exchange. Let's listen. 
First, President Carter speaks and continues to incite fear regarding these subjects. These constant uh, suggestions that the basic Social Security system should be changed does cause concern and consternation among the aged of our country. It's obvious that we should have a commitment to them that Social Security benefits should not be taxed and that there would be no peremptory change in the standards by which Social Security payments are made to the retired people. We also need to continue to index the Social Security payments so that if inflation rises, the Social Security payments would rise a commensurate degree to let the buying power of the Social Security check continue intact. In the past, the relationship between Social Security and Medicare has been very important to provide some modicum of aid for senior citizens in the retention of health benefits. Governor Reagan, as a matter of fact, began his political career campaigning around this nation against Medicare. Now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance with an emphasis on the prevention of disease, an emphasis on outpatient care, not inpatient care, an emphasis on hospital cost containment to hold down the cost of hospital care for those who are ill, an emphasis on catastrophic health insurance so that if a family is threatened with being wiped out economically because of, very, of a very high uh, medical bill, then the insurance would help pay for it. These are the kind of elements of a national health insurance important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, <laughs> there you go again. When I opposed Medicare, there was another piece of legislation meeting the same problem before the Congress. I happened to favor the other piece of legislation and thought that it would be better for the senior citizens and provide better care than the one that was finally passed. I was not opposing the principle of providing care for them. I was opposing one piece of legislation as versus another. There is something else about Social Security, of course, that doesn't come out of the payroll tax. It comes out of the uh, general fund that something should be done about. I think it's disgraceful that the disability insurance fund in Social Security finds checks going every month to tens of thousands of people who are locked up in our institutions for crime or for mental illness, and they are receiving disability checks from Social Security every month while a state institution provides for all of their needs and their care. And here's the Carter statement that was believed to cause him the greatest damage when he responds to Governor Reagan on the issue of nuclear weaponry and SALT II. First, the governor. I know the president is supposed to be replying to me, but sometimes I have a hard time in connecting what he's saying with what I have said or what my positions are. I sometimes think it's like the witch doctor that gets mad when a good doctor comes along with a cure that'll work. The, my point I have made already, Mr. President, with regard to negotiating, it does not call for nuclear superiority on the part of the United States. It is calls for a mutual reduction of these weapons, as I say, to the point that neither of us can represent a threat uh, to the other. And to suggest that the SALT II treaty that your negotiators negotiated was just a continuation and based on all of the preceding efforts by two previous presidents is just not true. It was a new negotiation because, as I say, President Ford was within about 10% of having a solution that could be acceptable. And I think our allies would be very happy 
to go along with a fair and verifiable SALT agreement. President Carter, you have the last word on this question. I think to close out this <clears throat> discussion, it would be better to put into perspective what we're talking about. I had a discussion with my daughter Amy the other day before I came here to ask her what the most important issue was. She said she thought nuclear weaponry the, and the control of nuclear arms. This is a formidable force. Some of these weapons have 10 megatons of explosion. If you put 50 tons of TNT in each one of railroad cars, you would have a car load of TNT, a train load of TNT stretching across this nation. That's one major war explosion in a warhead. We have thousands equivalent of megaton or million tons of TNT warheads. The control of these weapons is the single major responsibility of a president. And to cast down this commitment of all presidents because of some slight technicalities that can be corrected is a very dangerous approach. After this comment by President Carter, Mike Deaver, the president's advisor, said the race was won. When Reagan said, there you go again, every American watching in the United States said, yep, that's it. Well, and then finally, Here's the final coup. Next Tuesday is election day. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls, will stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? Do you feel that our security is as safe, that we're as strong as we were four years ago? And if you answer all of those questions, yes, why then I think your choice is very obvious as to who you'll vote for. If you don't agree, if you don't think that this course that we've been on for the last four years is what you would like to see us follow for the next four, then I could suggest another choice that you have. This country doesn't have to be in the shape that it is in. We do not have to go, down, go on sharing in scarcity with uh, the country getting worse off, with unemployment growing. We talk about the unemployment lines if all of the unemployed today were in a single line, allowing two feet for each one of them, that line would reach from New York City to Los Angeles, California. All of this can be cured, and all of it can be solved. All the pundits said the debate clinched the election. Ronald Reagan might have won anyway, but his assured performance in Cleveland had destroyed Carter's last hope for victory. A CBS poll contained a telling statistic. The percentage of people who thought that Reagan would lead the country into war declined from 43% to 35% after the debate. Photographer Michael Evans warned Reagan about the number of pictures he would have to autograph after he became president. And the candidate replied, well, after you've canceled Social Security and started a war, what else is there for you to do? Well, thank you for listening. 
For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.